0: Welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Low Vision. And my name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I'm really happy tonight to be able to be your host. And as you know that each month, the CCLVI, we do hold these telephone conferences, and the number of people who are tuning in from all over the country is really increasing. So we really appreciate that, and if you could spread the word to others, that would be fantastic. This uh, telephone conference is also being recorded by Ayers LA. And Ayers LA is a nonprofit organization that records podcasts and audio recordings for the blind and the print impaired audience. And if you go to their website, www.airsla.org, www.a-i-r-s-l-a, you'll find these podcasts. And also, they do make them available, so you could also find it at our CCLVI Webpage at www.cclvi. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today, and it's Dr. Paul Freeman. Dr. Freeman, he is really a very distinguished eye care professional who's really recognized throughout the world for his work in low vision. He uh, received his doctorate degree from the Pennsylvania College of Optometry. He's a fellow of American Optometry. He's a fellow of the College of Optometrists and Vision Development, and he's also a diplomate in low vision. So, Dr. Freeman, thank you so, so much for attending, and, you know, I was just thinking to myself, I remember when I read that book that you wrote, you know, The Art and Practice of Low Vision, it was something that we, we had all of our students read, so thank you so much for coming.
1: Well, thank, thank you for inviting me. I. Uh... I feel somewhat honored to be to be talking to your um, uh, your audience about uh, diabetes and uh, some of the the implications of vision loss and those things that can we can try to do to prevent vision loss uh, and some of the optical non-optical and electronic devices we can use to um, to help those folks who who suffer with some vision loss. So, um, yeah. I I just would like to at, at the very early part of this um, because you have introduced me and. Basically, given my credentials, which I which I thank you for, I just want to give you a quick philosophy of my care before maybe we get into some of the um, some of the particulars of, of working with people with diabetes or, for that matter, any condition that might cause a vision uh, vision impairment. Um, the the thing that I look at it, it, when I do a low vision examination or work with any of my patients is that I I try to make this very patient directed, based on lifestyle prescribing and lifestyle evaluations. Um, not making anything fit the patient, uh, or the patient fit into a, into a box, but rather have the the patient uh, guide and direct the process. Um, but to do that, there really is a hierarchy that I look at when I think about working with someone, as an example with diabetes. The first thing I look at is structure, and, and because I'm a, a low vision practitioner, and I my area of emphasis is on low vision only, I don't do primary care, I don't do um, that kind of, of um, eye care. Uh, I, really, I really look at structure from the perspective of, is the patient stable? Um, are there things that need to be done prior to me getting involved before we get involved with some of the functioning aspects of that individual, and so, so I'm not the one who diagnoses the diabetes. Um, obviously, he's an optometrist. I'm not the one that treats the, the diabetic uh, sequelae of the condition. Uh, but I am the person that, when it 's all said and done, uh, tries to help somebody move forward in a very positive direction uh, to to regain uh, their ability to visually stay in touch with their with their environment. Um, and so that 's kind of where I, I, I come from. as you mentioned, the art and practice of low vision um, there's a mission statement there that that I put in because it 's a mission statement. That I believe in, and, and I, if, if you will um, allow me, I would, I would tell you that there are four parts to it. And the first one is that we are care professionals helping those who are visually impaired to choose visual options to obtain a goal and maintain dignity. I think that's really important because I think that choosing a goal allows those people that we see, especially in the, in the area of visual impairment, um, to not feel helpless in their environments as best we can. Um, obviously, evaluation, the second, the second part of the mission statement, evaluation, is a continuum of primary care, so in many, many of the patients that I work with, in fact, all the patients that I work with, I co-manage in the sense that I do not take on their primary care. If I see something that is amiss, I will contact their, their doctors, um, and typically, on a typical day, I may talk to one, two, or three doctors um, and get patients back to them for additional care. Uh, because of things that I think might be new. Um, the the third aspect of the mission statement is is we bring to the evaluation honesty, compassion, empathy, and certainty of direction, so that, that I know when a patient says to me I have a goal, and the primary goal with, with most of my patients, and I think most patients who are visually impaired, is, is reading. Um, I know how to move in that direction um, honestly uh, and compassionately. And finally, and I think it's very important, I do not prejudge the motivational needs and desires of our patients. And I think that's one of the keys to to getting more patients who are visually impaired uh to be seen by by, by practitioners throughout the country and the world for that matter who work with visual impairment and that is not to prejudge the the, the need to be evaluated to see whether or not the patient um, who has a visual impairment can in fact benefit from the services that we offer um, through through uh low vision rehabilitative activities.
0: Well, that's really a very, very important statement to make because we see this so many times that patients will say that they were told from their eye doctor, their ophthalmologist, or their optometrist that nothing more can be done. Or you have a vision, an eye, that's a 2400 eye, and you just got to learn to live with that. Now, can you tell most of our listeners about the uniqueness? I think many people don't understand the differences between different types of eye doctors, optometrists and ophthalmologists, and you also have the other certification of being a diplomate in low vision. Can you tell everybody about what is the uniqueness of being a low vision diplomate and what's the difference or why should people with diabetes or low vision be seen by a low vision optometrist? Well, I,
1: I think, first of all, I, I, optometrists and ophthalmologists, uh, both are well aware of low vision rehabilitative services. In fact, there are practice strategies and preferred practice patterns, both in ophthalmology and optometry, um, about the care of the patient with a visual impairment. And so, it is it is the work that I do and and you all do at the Center for the Partially Sighted, the folks do all over the world, is not complementary or alternative medicine or or therapeutic treatment. This is mainstream. Um, Healthcare, eye care, and and um, so everyone knows about it. The problem becomes sometimes is that it's difficult to get kind of the step where an optometrist, or an ophthalmologist, as you pointed out, sends a patient on to the next practitioner who emphasizes low vision care. The the the, the vision uh, evaluation of someone who has a visual impairment is a little different than the general exam. The history is far more complex because we're really looking for very specific items to work around, goal-oriented items. Um, the evaluation may be about the same as far as the, the medical evaluation. Um, the, where things start to move away a little bit is that in, in low vision care, there's an emphasis on refraction, something with, which in a most recent article in Ophthalmology, uh, an author pointed out that 11% of the patients in her low vision practice in fact, simply needed a, a, a refraction, the kind of the which is better one or two thing. Um, and then there's the, the third part, which is really where the low vision practitioner then goes on to a, 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 a new path, and that is working with magnification and, and sometimes minification for those patients that have a visual field loss. And so, so those are the, the, some of the similarities and the differences. And so when I work with optometrists and ophthalmologists, um, my the, the part of this Venn diagram, if you will, that doesn't overlap is really the the decision making when it comes to magnification um, or minification as as it pertains to the lifestyle of the patients that I'm working with. Um, and so that that's really that's really where some of the differences are. Um, being a diplomate uh, simply means that I sat in front of a, a a group of my peers and demonstrated to them that I that I had the knowledge base, not necessarily the expertise, but the knowledge base of what it is to work with someone uh, with a visual impairment. It does not, however, mean that only diplomates can do low vision. There are a lot of very, very competent practitioners all over the world that are not diplomates. Um, but it's it, diplomate status is simply a, a form of recognition um, by peers suggesting that I basically went through the tasks of showing um, the knowledge that I had in front of my peers.
0: Now, can you tell the listeners about diabetes? Just in general, what is diabetes? We all hear about it. We all hear that it might be that you have sugar in your blood, but can you tell the listeners about diabetes and how does diabetes affect the eyes? Why is it that so many people with diabetes have low vision?
1: Well, uh, diabetes is is the inability of the body to appropriately use um, glucose. Um, Type 1 diabetics are those individuals uh, that... Their pancreas, which is what produces insulin, uh, is no longer functional. And because of that, they have to inject themselves to help that glucose be appropriately used by the body. Um, type 2 diabetics are those individuals that have blood sugar levels that are higher than they should be, but the pancreas is, is still producing insulin, um, but it may not get into the muscles appropriately. Um, and so, so ultimately, um, the blood sugar levels go up. And for those individuals, they typically take oral medications. There are, however, type two diabetic individuals that take oral medications as well as insulin. And so, so there are, there, there really is a, a line now that is not quite as defined as it used to be in the in the years years ago. Um, the concept of adult and childhood diabetes has gone by the wayside now. We call it type one and type two because what we find is. Um, that we're finding children now, because of the, the weight issues, the obesity issues in young children, are developing uh, type 2 diabetes at an earlier age based on, on, on weight rather than necessarily the, the inability of the pancreas to produce insulin. Um, and so, so that's kind of a – and I am not a diabetologist. So, so for those of you that are listening that really want to know more in-depth information, I would, I would encourage you to talk to a diabetologist – that's an individual who specializes in, in diabetic care to get a real good handle on that. Um, the reason why diabetes affects the, the eye, um, as it does other parts of the body, is because diabetes is a vascular disease, basically. It affects the blood vessels. And because the retina um, is, is blood vessel, it has a lot of blood vessels in it as well, um, there are di- conditions called diabetic retinopathy um, there are some studies that suggest that, that some forms of diabetic retinopathy are, are found in about 40% of the people uh, with diabetes, um, and, and about 8% of those individuals with vision threatening. So not all diabetic retinopathy threatens vision, although if left alone, it has the possibility of, of doing that. Um, so so there, there are grades of, of, of diabetic retinopathy Um, something called non-proliferative, in other words, background diabetic retinopathy where there's some blood leaking out of vessels, and there's something called proliferative where blood vessels, new blood vessels grow, and new blood vessels that grow tend to be weaker than the blood vessels that were there, and if they, for whatever reason, they bleed or they leak or they they do something like grow into the vitreous, the jelly-like part of the eye and then bleed, there can be some substantial vision loss. Um, the part of the eye that is the 20/20 part, the macula, can also swell, and that can create um, problems with central vision, uh, causing either distortion or a decrease in vision. And so, so those are really kind of the the general the general areas of of retina. Now, the other thing that happens with people who are diabetes is that they sometimes can develop cataracts earlier than than the kind of the, the cataracts we think about as age-related cataracts. And so these are individuals that, that the cataract can impact on, on light gathering coming into the eye. The challenge with, with doing cataract surgery, and, again, I don't do cataract surgery, but my, from reading and talking to physicians is that when you do cataract surgery, you also run the risk of, of kind of, of encouraging uh, some bleeding in the back of the eye. Now, with the newer techniques, there is less of that than there was before, but there is still bleeding. And basically that 's kind of you know that 's kind of the, a global look at, at some of the the problems that people with diabetes face,
0: so when we talk about these types of changes to the eye of a person with diabetes, um, how quickly does this typically happen uh, if a person 's had diabetes for one year, do we see these or is this more of a gradual type of an onset and what are some of the symptoms that people might look for, because any one of us listening tonight could develop diabetes at any time. And are there any symptoms that might lead us to believe that we're developing diabetes or vision changes?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, With type 1, people with type 1 diabetes, no one, I I don't know, people with type 1 diabetes are diagnosed relatively early because the onset of type 1 diabetes is very, very different than the onset of type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is really kind of an on-off thing where suddenly the, the, the insulin is not being produced and the blood sugars go way up and there are some very specific signs of, of being diabetic. Um, and, and so for those folks, the clock starts ticking kind of at that point. And so typically we see changes. Uh, now, there are some variables here, but we're not looking at changes that occur immediately. We're looking at 10 years and 15 years, and there are percentages out there in the literature, but it's not, a, it's not an immediate occurrence. Um, now, type 2 is a little different because people don't necessarily go to the doctor on a regular basis. And when type 2 develops, no one really knows how long someone has had type 2 diabetes. So, in fact, some people who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes can have some, some changes in the retina that, um, that suggest that it's been around a while. So there's, there's, there's really no way to judge in that respect. My suggestion, and, and just I'll, I'll step aside for a second, um, a year ago, I had the opportunity to participate in a diabetes expo uh, in, in Pittsburgh, and so I had the opportunity actually to, to talk to people, not as a doctor, but as a person standing there representing a, an organization to kind of, you know, find out what they knew about diabetes and things of that nature. And it was interesting that, 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 that a number of people did not realize that diabetes in fact affects the, the vision. Um, and, you know, I had comments like, well, you know, I, I don't have to go to the eye doctor because I don't have any problems. Well, there, there, as, as my wife, who's also an optometrist, points out, there's never a problem till there's a problem, and so one of the things we look to try to do is prevent those problems, and the way that those get prevented is by annual visits or visits that occur sooner than that based on the doctor who's evaluating the patient and kind of where their, where their diabetes is and their level of change in the back of the eye is. Um, Changes might be, though, I tell patients, um, if your vision is kind of goes up and down, that may be a fluctuation in blood sugar. But if if, 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 if it's enough of a change for a patient to think about me, it's enough of a change to call me to go in to see the patient. Um, But distortion, uh, any of the signs that one might get where things are not clear, uh, because of hemorrhaging, there will be suddenly looks like just a big fog, so there can be any number of, of, of symptoms, um, and, and so some people feel that, you know what, maybe I just need a new pair of glasses, and the fact of the matter is, it may not be a glasses-related situation, it may be a structural issue that has to be, then be addressed by an ophthalmologist, more specifically, for the most part, a, a, an ophthalmologist who's a retinal specialist.
0: And Dr. Freeman, do you see patients that come into your hospital in Pittsburgh where sometimes they may come in with six or eight or ten pairs of glasses and you know, it often leads to the suspicion that maybe this person has diabetes. Is that something that you, you often teach your interns?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is when I see that, the question that I ask a patient is, when you got your glasses and you were examined, when did you pick up your glasses? And so, you know, if I, for, for me anyway, I tend to want to examine a patient, even with 20-20 vision, even with reasonably well-controlled blood sugars, I like to see them twice once in the morning, once in an afternoon, to see if I get the same refractive findings, the objective findings, mm-hmm. if I get the same visual acuities. And so what it does, it narrows things down for me. So typically when I see people with a bag of glasses and 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 they give me some other signs, like I'm really, really thirsty, I go to the bathroom a lot, um, I drink a lot, I, or I, I eat a lot, I'm not gaining a lot of weight, I mean, those kinds of things tend to, to to encourage me, to encourage the patient to go to a a doctor and to to get blood testing done.
0: Now, many people with diabetes, they often complain that they have problems with glare. And what are some of the things that you find to be helpful or things that you could prescribe for people with diabetes to manage these problems with glare? They sometimes say that the sun is too bright or I go inside Walmart and the fluorescent lights bother me. What are some things that you could help them with?
1: Well, the the glare issues are really very subjective, at least in my way of thinking, because you can have 10 people and all have different glare problems, even though they have the same vision, the same eye condition, um, basically the same findings. And so what I typically do is, is work with individuals, and in my practice, I do a lot of loaning, so that a patient will come in and say, I have glare problems. So we typically start out with the yellow filter. And why a yellow filter? Um, years ago, Corning started working with some, some specific lens filters designed to work with patients with retinitis pigmentosa, and they were kind of reddish, and they kind of then extended that range from red to a light yellow and they were kind of a lime color. And so what we do is we kind of go in the middle of that and say to a patient, okay, I want you to go out and I want you to work with this lens under various lighting conditions. Look into the sun, look away from the sun, do whatever you want to, but I want to know kind of is its its it... Is it, is it good as far as the, con- the, the glare is concerned, but it's the wrong color? Is it, is it you, you're, you need it to be darker or lighter? And so we need to st- establish a, a base. We want to be in control of that base. So we typically start out with a lens, and then from there, work either up and down with darkness or laterally with, with color changes. And how about, do you find that people with diabetes, do they do particularly better?
0: With uh, polarized lenses or any particular color, have you found a, a trend?
1: No, you know, I really haven't. Like I said, um, you know, the, the good and the bad news is that people with diabetes don't read our journals and don't know, know what they're <laughs> supposed to see. And so because of that, it, it allows them to make a decision based on their lifestyles. As an example, if I lived in Arizona, I think I would be more uh, more directed then I would be in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, for those of you that have ever been to Pittsburgh, you know that the sun comes out every once in a while. And so we have to pay attention to the to the, the various lighting conditions. So there really is not one specific filter that makes sense, at least in my community. But, but I think the key is to establish a reference point and then move off that reference point either vertically um, with either darker or lighter or horizontally with different colors.
0: And what about driving? We see that many people who have diabetes ask the question, is there something that could be done to help me to drive? What types of things do you demonstrate to your patients with diabetes who want to drive?
1: Well, I, I, first and foremost is, is um, 50 states have 50 different regulations. Some have um, visual acuity limits. Some have limits, but you can use bioptic devices. Um, some have visual field Restrictions, some don't. And so the first order of business is to make sure that the individual that, that I'm talking to uh, falls into the legal criteria of, of driving in that state. Um, then the second part of that really is something that I might work with the diabetologist on, and that is the, the stability of blood sugars. Because what, you, what, what, what we don't want to see is somebody who is very variable in diabetes, in, in, their, in their blood sugars, have a lot of hypoglycemic reactions. Because those can cause, cause um, accidents that will involve both the patient and, and others. So, so we look at two things: one is, you know, visual acuities, and the other is, um, I mean, the legal requirements, and then the other is the, um, the ability to maintain reasonably stable, um, stable uh, blood sugars. The things that we don't test, the things that the, the states typically don't test for, and we're looking at these now a little bit more, uh, more rigorously are two things. One is called uh, contrast sensitivity, which is the ability to, to, to look at something and it's not really black and white, it kind of fades out. So we wanna know, can patients see that and, and, and at what point do those, does that contrast di- disappear? And the other is something called the useful field of view, which is basically divided attention. In other words, if I'm looking at something and something comes from the side, how, how best can I respond to that? And so we're looking at those. Now, those are really more functional. Those are not legal issues. Those are more functional and safety issues. Um, yeah. Driving is really very complex. I mean, if we look at, we look at some of the other areas in driving. Uh, we're looking at eye-hand coordination, eye-foot coordination, eye movements, uh, speed, of accuracy, speed and accuracy of eye movements, uh, the ability to turn one's head. For those di- individuals with diabetes that have um, uh, peripheral neuropathy, Sometimes when they think they're putting their foot on the gas pedal, they're putting it on the brake or vice versa. So, so I think it's a very complex process. As an optometrist, however, the only thing that I can say to my patient is, you are either legally able to drive a car or you are not legally able to drive a car.
0: And in, in terms of with a lot of the patients who do meet the legal requirements, say based if the state does have a visual acuity requirement and a peripheral vision requirement, uh, what is your feeling on the use of biotic telescopes? How have you found them to be effective? Is that something that you found to be successful, or is it really dependent on the patient?
1: Well, in Pennsylvania, we don't allow biotic uh, telescopes, which are telescopes mounted in the upper part of the glasses, are not permissible to get a driver's license in Pennsylvania. My feeling is, and I don't know, this is not necessarily—I don't believe in the, in the regs—but I think that, that if someone can get a driver's license like me as an example, I could use a bioptic just to see farther. Uh, My feeling is, and I did a real informal study, and what I found was that the vast majority of people that get bioptics typically don't use them because the folks that need those bioptics tend to want to travel in their environments rather than going cross country or somebody from California driving in Pittsburgh. Um, And so so most of what they do in their environment really has to do with larger uh, pictures than what a telescope might, might um, help. Uh, if, we, if, we, if we really break down what those bioptics do is they simply take a, a, a target and magnify it for identification purposes. That's all they do. Um, there's nothing in, in, a, in, a, in a familiar environment that, in, that, that, that a bioptic is necessary for. Having said that, I'm not against bioptic driving. I think, I think that for those folks in those states that it's legal, They ought to have the option of using a bioptic, and and there are people that rely on the bioptics. I mean, Ohio, the next state over from us, has a very, very intricate uh, bioptic program at Ohio State University. And
0: it's really interesting in terms of we're talking to most of the patients. A lot of our patients who do drive with biopic telescopes, they usually state that when they're driving in their city that they live in or their neighborhood, They're turning. They turn at the 76 gas station, or they turn at the Walmart, or they know where they turn at the park. And the only time they really are using their bioptics are usually when they're driving from state to state, trying to see what are the street signs or the road signs on the highway. So I think that you're absolutely right on that. Now, with diabetes, you had mentioned how important, it is so important that the patient keeps his or her blood sugars level. And how can people with low vision do that if their vision is blurred? How can they test their blood sugar? How can they measure their insulin? How do they do these things? What are things that you could do to help them?
1: Well, uh, there there are some, uh, obviously over time things have really developed. Early on um, when it was uh, simply insulin injections, uh, one of the things we looked at, again, we look at contrast. Some insulin is very, very clear. Some insulin is murky. And so I would teach my patients to be able to place some sort of um, cardboard behind the, the insulin syringe to be able to know kind of which, one, which insulin they're using so they don't confuse the clear insulin with the murky insulin. Um, there are any number of magnification devices, anywhere from, from devices that actually fit on the insulin syringes, uh, to hand magnifiers and to stand magnifiers, uh, to electronic devices where we can place the, the uh, insulin syringe under the a camera, as an example, to enlarge the, the image. Um, now with, with, um, with um, the, um, the pumps, we can now, we can get these pumps filled up um, and, and be able to uh, not necessarily have to measure on a regular basis. So, so there are a number of ways that, that um, individuals that have visual impairments can be helped. There are also talking, there's also talking um, devices that will help.
0: And with these types of talking devices, uh, like a, a glucometer that will talk to uh, a person. How, how can a person go about getting them? Can they go to any pharmacy, or do they should they see their optometrist or ophthalmologist and ask them to write a prescription for a talking glucometer?
1: Well, it's interesting. I think that that one of the things I, I had um, I'm, I've been a member of, of the American Diabetic Association for a number of years, um, and I have received Diabetes Forecast uh, forever. Diabetes Forecast. And, and every once in a while, they'll put an article in about, about um, uh, diet, the glucose meters. There was one recently where, where companies were actually sending free glucose meters to, um, to doctors, at least, and, and we had gotten a couple and handed them out. Um, I do not have any, any talking glucose meters, but my guess is that for somebody who wants one of those, it would be, it would be something to discuss with the, um, with the primary care uh, provider or the diabetologist.
0: Yeah, my understanding out here in California, too, we do see that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies that they will give them to the eye doctors. Oh. And the thing is, is that they like to give them away because the money is made in the strips, I understand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like the printers, you know, the different types of inkjet printers that we have there. It costs you, they'll give you a printer for $29, and the ink costs you $79. Exactly. Well, you know. Dr. Freeman, another thing that a lot of patients will often comment on is that they may say that under a particular type of lighting, if they read on their porch, they could read their mail, or they might be able to read things better under certain types of lighting. Do you have any types of recommendations for our listeners who have diabetes as it relates to lighting?
1: I think we're back to these are very individual um, activities. There is no, In my mind, anyway, there's no really one good light. The best light is the light that nature gives us. Uh, most of my patients can go outside and, and are better able to read in good sunlight than anything else. Having said that, there are full spectrum bulbs, um, both fluorescent incandescent, incandescent, um, that one can put into a standard fixture. Um, but they're always the general fluorescent and um, tungsten bulbs that people use. And again, what I what I tell my patients is, we show them a series of bulbs in our practice. But then I say to my patients, you take these home, try them. But then if you really want to know kind of what's the best for you, go to a lighting store, bring a bulb or not, sit down or have somebody bring lighting structures, lighting fixtures to you. Um, We tend, if somebody is not anxious to do that, we tend to to get patients um, lighting fixtures that have gooseneck heads on them so that they can twist them and turn them. Um, Typically not three levels of lighting, though it's one level of lighting. And those have been pretty successful right across the board, not just necessarily for individuals with diabetes.
0: Now, with respect to some of the new things in technology, what are other types of technological devices that could really help a person with moderate or advanced diabetes to be able to read their mail or to look at a photograph? Are there certain things that you have at your clinic there that you you show a lot of your patients that are more on the high-tech end other than some specialized glasses?
1: Well, we, we, we tend, interestingly, to start with the, the lenses because those are really the devices that, that help us to make sure that the patient is attentive to their, their blood sugar levels and their diabetes. In other words, we tend to prescribe a lot of microscopic lenses, and the value to a microscopic lens is it doesn't change. And so if a patient gets a microscopic lens and has to hold materials at, let's say, three or four inches, and suddenly the lens doesn't work, the patient calls and says, you know, my lens doesn't work anymore. Well, you know, that means come on in or go see your, your ophthalmologist or somebody to see whether or not there's something going on in the back of the eye that makes that lens not work because the lens doesn't change. The newer equipment, all of the electronic devices, which are new, which are out there, which are very, very good, they really allow individuals to turn up the the, the magnification a little bit and they allow them to change the contrast or the color. And the danger to that is that unless somebody's really been told on a regular basis, when you start changing that magnification or that contrast that you need to call somebody, if, if that patient doesn't do that, they can miss a window of opportunity to slow down or stop progressions of changes in the back of the eye that the retina doctors can now do, more so now than they could 20 years ago. There are these new injections, these, these, these what are they called anti-VEGF uh, vascular endothelial growth factor uh, injections that can stop the blood vessels from leaking, slow down the changes. In fact, help, in, in some situations, make patients see a little bit better. But if the, if the patient misses the window of opportunity because they're simply turning that magnification up or changing the contrast, it's very dangerous. And, and it, it really is something that, while the technology is improving, we still have to go and rely on the, the ability of the patient to recognize if there's a change in vision it's got to go back and tell somebody.
0: That is so important. You know, I, I really never thought of that. I mean, that is really a very important point because, again, as you said, they could turn a knob, it'll make everything bigger, but they might have missed that opportunity to see their doctor to have this leak sealed. And I think it's really important for people also to understand, if you do have diabetes and diabetic retinopathy, that many times these medications or other types of steroid injections uh, they are able to sometimes reverse the blurred vision. Is that right? Yep.
1: Yeah, and and we the, the retina doctors I work with have been in a number of studies, um, and and the studies that that are working now, and most of them are with these these, these two particular uh, drugs, Avastin and Lucentis, both of which are kind of the same drug, just different molecular weights. But but we I find that some patients do well, and some patients don't. But the question is, or the, the problem is, the concern is to make sure that, that when, when patients can use those, those, those shots, that they get to them in a timely fashion. We don't know what that window is, but, but I can tell you that, that if a patient has a problem today and six months from now it goes to somebody, I don't think that's the window. And so, so I, I really I, I, I emphasize to my patients, while it's great to get the catalogs and it's great to go to a store to pick up a device, Unless they've got a real firm connection with somebody who can monitor their health and understand the relationship between their vision and their, their, the, the disease process, then they could potentially miss out on some, some life and vision-changing um, um, intervention.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Well, you know, I guess just to basically summarize, and for, for most people, many people can have diabetes and really not know it, and we should be aware of symptoms of being very thirsty, very hungry, and often urinating a lot, or we might experience that we have fluctuations in vision, and what are a few recommendations that you could give as a summary to our listeners who do have diabetes? What do you think are the most important things that they must do to preserve their vision?
1: Well... I, 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 a fellow, a friend of mine who's a physician who treats a lot of diabetics, uh, once said to me, there are three things that, that someone who has diabetes ought to pay attention to. What you eat, what eats you, and exercise. If, 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 we can, if people with diabetes can attend to those three things, those are the three controllable areas. The, the length of time one has diabetes is not a controllable situation. Once one has diabetes, the clock ticks. But those other three areas, the, the what eats you, kind of the depression aspect, the the I'm unhappy or I'm tense, that kind of stuff, or what you eat, you know, this whole issue with obesity and lack of the appropriate vitamins and, and the wrong foods and the exercise. And if you read any anything in any journal, independent of whether one is, has diabetes or not, there's always a discussion of, of, of exercise. Not necessarily Olympic-style exercise, but exercise to get the body moving, to make sure the blood's flowing well, to make sure that that that, that we're not developing a, a as we have, a an obese country. And so those are the three things that I constantly tell my patients that you've got to pay attention to. Um, obviously controlling blood sugar, while it's easy for me to tell somebody who has diabetes you ought to control it, I fully recognize that That lots of my patients try to control it, and in fact, it's very, very difficult. So, so I'm never one to point my finger because I'm not sitting in that seat at this point in my life. Um, And so, so it's one of these things that that I try to educate my patients about. These are things you want to think about. You got to work at them as best you can, and if you can, you can, you know, keep your keep your your A1Cs down. And there are there are specific guidelines. The so A1C is the measure of, of your blood glucose levels over a couple months versus kind of on a daily basis. Keep your blood pressure under control best you can, um, things of that nature. It's just trying to live as, as healthy as one might be um, under the conditions of having diabetes.
0: Well, that's some really, really great advice, and this has just really been some just fantastic information and, uh, Dr. Freeman, are you able to answer some questions from a lot of our, our callers this evening?
1: It would be my pleasure.
0: Okay. Yeah, let's go ahead and let's unmute your phones with a, a star six, and uh, we'll take some questions for Dr. Freeman. Or not. <laughs> let's see. He's
1: trying to unmute. <laughs> yeah.
0: Go ahead and is it a star six there, Bernice? Yes. Okay
1: don't all speak at once
2: (laughs) okay okay then i guess i'll go first for the very first time yes please (laughs) okay uh when you mentioned about you know not fitting the uh uh, by the way thank you for the presentation um the uh and are you on the speakerphone by any chance i'm I'm holding a speakerphone because otherwise Yeah, okay, okay. It just makes it very difficult for people with a hearing problem, and I have a severe hearing loss, uh, but I I was able to hear everything. Okay. Uh, But the thing is, and I don't run across this just in eye. I am not diabetic. I'm athletic, actually. We just did a race on Sunday. Uh, But I run across this with eye doctors, uh, ear, nose, throat, and particularly uh, the hearing aid dispensers or audiologists. Uh, what you mentioned about not fitting the patient to a, a group or putting them in a box and then, you know, having the patient fitted to whatever they're going to use or to diagnosis and so on, um, I, I have found that many, many uh, medical practitioners of a particular note in the field that, fields that I mentioned, Tend to do this a lot, and I don't know if it's because they want to be in their comfort zone or not. I, for one, cannot deal with that myself because they're making a decision that I have to live with, and so I have to. I figure I have to be a partner in this situation. It's not a question of uh, uh, of them dictating to me, if you will, Definitely. and I'm just wondering. Because when I ask other people, well, okay, you had this done, or you wear hearing aids, or this, that, and the other, what can you tell me about this aspect of your experience? Uh, 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 in other words, they don't know anything, and they just did whatever they were told to do. What happens when you run into a patient like that, and I, I don't know, or there's probably a couple. Can you educate the patient to work with you as a willing partner, or do you give up? Or, or, you know, I mean, obviously some will just flat out refuse.
1: But what happens in that situation? Because I think it's highly important. Well, I, I agree with you. First of all, um, I think that, that part, of, part of my experience is I've had the opportunity to sit on both sides of the chair as a, as a doctor and also as the husband of someone. Who had diabetes, um, who subsequently passed away. But, so I've been on both sides of that chair, so I fully appreciate both sides. Um, what I do, what I do in my head is elective, and that is that I say to a patient, Mrs. Jones, do you have a goal? Now, a goal can't be, I just want to see better, because that's really not very specific, and the fact of the matter is, just seeing better doesn't, doesn't mean anything, because The definition of why they come to see me is they have a visual impairment that cannot be corrected by general general glasses, contact lenses, medicine has been ruled out, and for the most part, now we're looking at specific goal-oriented activities. So typically, patients come to me and say, I want to be able to read, and I'll say that most patients because the reality is the vast majority of patients can be helped by someone who does work in, in low vision rehabilitation right across the board, and so... What I will say to a patient is, Mr. Jones, if you want to be helped, I can help you, but you're going to have to work with me. This is no different than someone getting a prosthetic leg. Prosthetic leg, if someone says, yep, I need a prosthetic leg, I know that one has to work with that. There's a whole training protocol. It's not stick the leg on and run. I mean, we see that in the movies, but in reality, there's a, there's a whole process, a rehabilitative process that goes along with that. And vision rehabilitation by the language, means that we are doing some rehabilitation. And for the most part, rehabilitation is a, is a partnership, as you pointed out. It's a partnership between me and my patient. So if a patient says, I quit, I say to them, okay, I guess you've quit. If the patient says, I want to work, I tell my patients, as long as you're in this, so am I. However long it takes, we're going to get the job done because that's what you want to do. If it's legal, and I say that because if a patient says to me, I have 2,200, and, and I want to be able to drive a car. In Pennsylvania, that's not legal. And so, so if a patient's willing to work, picked up some specific goals, then I'm willing to work with them for as long as it takes. But I do make sure that the patient's an integral part of that process.
2: Okay. I have a follow-up comment, by the way, uh, different topic, and I appreciate that answer. Um, one of the things that you brought up was, you know, oh, you can flip a switch and it gets bigger and, you know, then they don't report it, that they've been doing this more and more often. One of the thing I have retinitis pigmentosa with Usher's syndrome, and uh, the Usher's also has auditory fatigue, and uh, I'm, I'm very severe at the moment. I have 102 decibel loss, so you can imagine how amplified this phone is. They'll probably hear me out on the street. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> anyway... Um, the dogs can definitely hear it. Uh, but here's, here's the thing. Uh, I have actually monitored my hearing to the point when I go in for a test and they ask me, how's my hearing? I actually can tell them, oh, I've gone up or down X amount DBs. And if you know anything about that, you really can't tell like a DB that accurately, but I've done this time and time again. I'm 52 and I've been doing this since I was a teenager. And as far as the vision aspect is concerned, I have the uh, computer set up because I can't see paper anymore. I have a cataract. I actually have two of them. But anyway, I only use one eye, and I have very limited field. But I I can still see a screen that's lit, Uh, as long as there's no white background. That's like shining a flashlight in my eye. Uh, But the thing is, I will use a certain... Uh, a a black background with like green writing I think it's 14 point actually I know it's 14 point but if I ever need to see anything that is more finely detailed and I bring it up even higher I make it a point to go backwards to where it was even though it is easier to read what's on the screen I won't leave it there I will leave it where I can read it, but not make it super easy because it makes, I think it makes my eye work a little bit, but I monitor the changes. If I'm right on the border, it's easier to monitor when I need to go higher. And then that's a warning sign, as you said. Right. And I'm wondering why more doctors just don't even bring that up at all. You know, if there's any change, say something.
1: Well, part of part, you, I think you make good points. Now, I'll tell you what the biggest problem is, is that a lot of stuff is readily accessible on the internet, it's accessible in, in, in stores, it's accessible um, in, in association, kind of the, the, the stores and associations, and the problem is, is people buy, purchase them from folks that may or may not have a good handle on vision loss, visual impairment, and what the, what the implications are for when things get, when things have to be changed. And that's is—that's really what I find to be the most upsetting of of everything I do is when somebody comes in and says, you know, these glasses don't work anymore. Well, how long have they not been working? Well, about two years, but the doctor said this is as strong as it's going to get. Well, that's not true, and the fact of the matter is somebody should have gone back to their doctor. You start playing with the dials. Now, you obviously have the capability of coming back to baseline, which I think is very, very smart. So if that baseline changes... That's the time you go back to the doctor. And, and for, for in your particular situation, which is a little bit different than someone with diabetes, you kind of have a better handle having had, having had your condition over the years. You've got a better handle probably than most of the doctors you see. I see a lot of patients with, with RP and ushers and, and things where the patient says to me, my vision's changed, just do a field so I have a documentation when I go to somebody who doesn't understand. And I say to them, my vision's changed, they say, no, it hasn't. I want to be able to show them. So, so my reliance at my end of the world is on my patients. Patient says vision's changed. I believe them. One of the big issues with when when somebody says vision changes and they come to me and say, but everybody else says it hasn't, I look immediately at at contrast sensitivity because when we test in, in in a in a standard room lighting condition, we're looking at very dark black and very white. Contrast sensitivity testing tests in gradations of black to white. So so somebody may be able to see that biggie on the wall, but but they know their vision has changed and when we do the contrast testing, we find in fact it has. And so the second they step out of my room, they can't see anything. So so I really low vision rehabilitation is very very patient patient directed, if you will. And and I'm really just I'm acting like the guide. You know, patient puts me in a direction, I move in that direction. Patient says, "I quit." Then I guess we're done because, again, my wife points out, nobody can care for somebody like that person can care for himself or herself. So I can try best I can to stimulate somebody's desires to move forward. But a patient says, nope, I don't want to do the work, I don't want to read, I don't want to watch TV, it's, it's elective. And I say to my patients, when you're ready, I'm here.
0: I hear you. <clears throat> let's go ahead and let's uh, give another person the an opportunity to ask Dr. Freeman a question.
3: Well, this is Ann. Hi, Ann. I I don't have diabetes. I facilitate um, a group with the Senior Center Without Walls, and one of the um, members has MS, and somebody gave her a CCTV recently and no instruction on using it. And I only kind of help her over the telephone, and I think she keeps changing the contrast. Now, I have a CCTV, and I have to change the contrast depending on what it is I'm trying to read. To make it um, make it right, but I think that should she try to work with maybe just one type of uh, reading material and get one contrast for that.
1: It would seem to me the first order of business for her is to get a thorough evaluation, and the reason I say that is because having MS does not necessarily mean that you have a severe vision loss. Sometimes, again, as we pointed out just with the last gentleman. There may be a contrast issue more than a vision, uh, kind of a 20-something issue. Um, and so so getting a closed-circuit television, it, bigger is not always better. And so I think that the first order of business is for this individual to be given a good, thorough, low-vision rehabilitative evaluation to determine if that's the best for that individual. Um, we, we, I've been working with one CCTV now that you can actually move the materials around. It, it will photograph the materials and then move the materials around either by magnifying if you want or uh, and and reading it kind of in a column or reading it across a page one in one continuous line or coming out basically in one spot called rapid serial visual processing and all of this is done basically with a with a, a little ball so if part of the person's problem with MS is is fine motor control which down the road that may be an issue then this is something that that person might want to look at so so I think when we talk about closed circuit televisions, there are there is a continuum of closed circuit televisions, anywhere from very very small portable systems to these larger systems that some of them can be automated. And yeah, so
3: I, I have one myself. It's quite an old one now. Maybe I should. I've got macular degeneration and um, have very limited vision. It's just the peripheral in, in one eye. Maybe I should look at a newer CCTV myself. <laughs> Yeah. Well, before you do that, that, that's we're back to making sure. I I, I just did have a, a complete evaluation. I saw my went back to the specialist I went to uh, four years ago. And yeah, Well, if you're good, then I think then you're I think you move forward. But but again, you've got to look
1: to you got to go to somebody that that ha- knows the relationship. So as an example, as an example, um, I had a patient who who should have been able to use a closed circuit TV but it was prescribed incorrectly. And the reason it was prescribed incorrectly is because no one bothered to tell this young lady, young lady, she's 80 years old, that she should be using a reading lens to look at the information on the closed circuit TV. Wearing a bifocal, most people don't quite know how to get up or down in the bifocal, and this, this particular patient was looking at the closed circuit TV, making things bigger, but as they got bigger, all they did was get bigger and blurrier, she was very, very frustrated to the point where she doesn't want to work. Now she's come to see me and she said nothing will work. And the fact is it does work. It, it works because because she's now using the appropriate part of her lens. But she has been so frustrated by not using the appropriate lens that we've got to work through now her frustrations. And so it is it is really, really critical that, that just making things bigger without putting them in focus is not necessarily the ideal situation for, for some for some patients. So so I, it, it's important for someone to to be guided, even with even with these electronic devices, to make sure they're being used with the appropriate lens.
3: Yeah, I'm 85 myself, <laughs> well, and Anna, um, Anna. I've been using the same CCTV for a number of years. Well, Anne,
0: I think as Dr. Freeman suggested, it's important that you yeah. have an evaluation by a low vision eye doctor, and that doctor might be able to give you some advice. Yeah. A uh, next question for Dr. Freeman. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Dr. Freeman, it's Bernice.
0: Um, you know, um, at the Western Blind Rehab Center in Palo Alto,
3: they they now say that they prescribe CCTVs uh, uh, by eye condition. Uh, can you speak to that? Hmm.
1: Well, that, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I'd be... I, I'm not sure I'd know how to answer that. Uh, prescribing a CCTV, we're back to function, not structure. I mean, once the... When I look at a patient, the first and most important part of my evaluation is to make sure that structure is stable. Um, and, and that information goes back to the referring doctor, whether it's an optometrist or ophthalmologist, and, and others involved. So it may go back to an optometrist, an ophthalmologist, a diabetologist, a neuro, a, a neurosurgeon or a neurologist, um, or a primary care physician. So, so that information goes back on the structural side. Then we look at function, and, and the fact of the matter is, um, not everybody needs a closed-circuit television. In, in my practice, we prescribe a lot of them, but we also prescribe a lot of reading lenses. We prescribe a lot of, of handheld devices uh, for close work. And so, so it really, we're back to patient-driven behavior and, and lifestyle. So if a patient says, you know, I do a lot of traveling, then I might look at something like a closed-circuit TV for home, but I might also look at one of the more portable systems from, for, for getting around. Um, if a patient says, "You know, I'm between here and Florida," then we've got to look at devices that would be easily transportable, making the assumption that economics play a role in what the patient ultimately gets. Um, so, so there are a number of variables that we look at, but but the disease, the specific disease. So, if you're telling me that you know, macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, glaucoma, retinitis pigmentosa, they all get CCTVs. I, I'm not sure how I would be able to do that because. I'm really very, very directed by the patient. Okay, let's take two more questions for Dr. Freeman. Did you say that uh, 40% of the
0: people with diabetes have changes in their retina?
1: Well, that, that was a study. That was a study that was done that said 40% have, have, di- have retinal changes and 8% of that group have, have, um, have sight-threatening uh, retinal retinal changes. We know that, that diabetes is one of the leading causes of, of visual impairment. That we know that there are lots of people yearly that develop diabetic retinopathy or macular edema that then suffer from a vision loss that, that may not be able to be taken care of through any sort of medical or therapeutic intervention and ultimately end up um, seeing someone like me for low vision rehabilitative care. Again, I, you know when I look at those numbers, the only thing the numbers tell me is that there's a big population out there that really requires care and education, and I think education is is critical to to care for for patients with any condition. Um, and 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 people with diabetes, for the most part, are really open to being educated. You know, at this meeting I I went to, people with diabetes are very very good at at taking direction. I mean, they have to be because they've become regimented to maintaining their lifestyles based on either insulin or or medications or diet. So education is, I think, actually absolutely critical to working with, with patients with diabetes, or anybody for that matter.
0: Okay, last question for Dr. Freeman. This is just really fantastic. Next question.
1: Is there uh, a genetics or hereditary relationship with diabetes? Maybe I'm getting out of your area expertise. But... No, well, you know, that, that actually comes real close to home. Um, and I'm allowed to speak about myself because there are no legal rec, uh, regulations about talking about oneself. Um, everybody on my mother's side has, has been diabetic, um, and so, so in my head, part of it I'm sure is hereditary. The, the environmental aspects of it, how much I eat, um, The again, we're back to the, 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 my eating, my exercising, things of that nature where I'm trying real hard to stave off any changes, I'm doing what I can to keep that hereditary component down Um, so that it doesn't ultimately express itself in diabetes. I'm at the border, and my physician, who I see every six months, says to me, look, we can do this one of two ways. You can lose weight, or you can take a pill. And he, he, like I, say to my patients, you make the decision. You want to take a pill? I can write the script. You want to lose weight? You make the decision. And so part of it is hereditary. Part of it, I think, is environmental. And we, we see... You can look at literature, and you'll find all potential causes and reasons for both type 1 and type 2, but hereditary is, in fact, part of that. Uh, they're looking at, at um, they being researchers, look at, at, at genomics these days and, and are coming up with all sorts of, of uh, possible options for who has what and, and whether or not you're susceptible or you're at risk for developing any condition, um, and I think diabetes is is absolutely one of those. Thank well,
0: thank you very, very much, Dr. Freeman. This has just been truly a great, great lecture this evening. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, is there an email or other contact information to your clinic?
1: Anybody wants to get in touch with me, they can they can uh, email me at Freeman K P. That's F R E E M A N K as in Kathy, P as in Paul at AOL.com.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Freeman, and I hope all of you really enjoyed tonight's presentation. Bye, everybody. Thank you very much.